Section Twenty One of the Centurions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Yanning Guo. The Centurions by Biagi, Chapter Eighteen. The following day was one of excitement and petty anxieties. I constantly feared the wonderful young woman would, at the last moment, change her mind and elect to remain faithful to her fancy, declare the true earl. But I was far from understanding Arthur's story. She directed her preparations with a cruel energy that was beyond alteration, and impatient to depart. Would have sailed from Central before noon, but superstition prevailed. A lucky voyage must always be started at sundown. I accompanied Alpha to the Temple of the Sun, where she led the high noon devotions. For the time, she forgot her new emotions in fanatical worship of the sun as the broad rays streamed upon her. All Central knew she would that evening set out to see the world. And the people crowded the streets to cheer their beloved priestess and wish her bon voyage. They cheered her beauty and piety, and because she had sent Kimbenlia to his belt, disappointed. I alone knew the object of the tour. That evening at sundown, we boarded the good ship Central. As the great winds fluttered and the vessel slowly rose, a voice crowd shouted good luck to us. And Alpha waved the colors of Centauri in response. Then suddenly we darted ahead into infinite blue plains, and the search for God began. It is impossible to describe the many strange, wonderful sights seen upon those travels. We skimmed swiftly over marvelous, wild bird cities, dense forests cut with silvery, winding streams, and over long, snow-capped mountain ranges. Frequently, the ship fluttered to earth, and the day was idly waiting, fishing or gathering wild fruit and flowers. And once we nestled upon a lofty peak that pierced the clouds and viewed the mountain girdled with sleet, ice, and snow. Yet where we rested, the grass grew rank, and some delicate pink blossoms I gathered and drooped in the breast of Alpha Centauri. It took nearly two days to cross a great tract of prairie land, and we flew with dizzy velocity over five great oceans. The roaring, mountainous waves swirled frantic for life. It seemed impossible ships ever navigated these fierce waters. Yet they did centuries ago, but disasters had been appalling. As we gazed downward, awed by the stupendous vastness of the earth, the universe. We rapidly pondered over the reason of this gigantic creation. Bread of soul, Vigilius, it is a true faith. How obscured the intellect that reasons otherwise. Soul, do not doubt, Vigilius. Soul always. Argument is more debilitating than cold in the head. The extraordinary belief of this beautiful centurion made her adamant, and I decided the woman. Not the belief. We visited all the large cities of this world, and great cities of commerce and gigantic industry, and were royally entertained. Our approach, 
heralded hours in advance, signaled great festivities. And these people of advanced views proclaimed wisdom soaring, but old Centauri is monarch of this land of wise men, and equality is as mystical here as in my world. The great family is supreme, and Alpha, my Alpha, is princess of Centauri. When continual nationality lacks individuality, travel in my world is far more interesting. Yet Centauri is beautiful, a wonderful vision of superb development. But I see one city, and you have seen them all. Alpha Centauri entered these marvelous cities, quivering with expectations, radiant with hope. But departure was invariably hastened by bitter disappointment, and in despair, she finally suggested the return to Central. I brusquely advised her to continue traveling, reminding her that once in Central, all hope was ended. Then, endeavoring to console, I took long and earnestly about ideals never realized, and、I、succeeded in rousing anger. Which is better? She reproached me for planting this image of torture in my brain, and you cast me with the absurdities of six centuries ago. Ah, Virgilius, she continued, this phantom of my brain has adoration far exceeding mine. A powerful magnetism forced me upon this tour. All ideas, no matter how fabulous. Have had a previous existence. What the brain conceives can be realized. Nothing is impossible. Life is the most fabulous illusion in the universe, a marvelous creation of soul. Vigilius, the magnetism of your idea forced you into a stupendous folly, but you realized. I realize, but it does not bring me peace or happiness. I retorted, "You sought and worshipped beyond your sphere." She quickly answered, "The current of thought met, crashed, and lost power in vibration. The union of magnets creates disaster." Virgilius, I have a great longing to return to Central. Some force urges me. To travel farther is needless. Ah, how selfish is my passion! I follow your advice. The tour continues. So we sailed onward, and into a corner of her vast knowledge, Alpha Centauri stood the wisdom of deceit. She smiled and appeared gay, happy, when heartsick, disappointed, and bored. She preferred solitude, lost her brilliant coloring, and the grave, frank eyes became dull, fatigued. And those traveling bazaars paid little heed to her erratic ways, believing she was deep in the study of some new scientific discovery, which she was. And had it not been for my pleasant surroundings, it would have been a toss-up between the airship and the sex. After all, second cold was to be envied. The propeller was faithful to sex, the stars true to Saunders. Only Sheldon and myself were excavating with doubts as to our landing. Alpha Centauri had gathered about her many charming people. They had entertaining company, 
made life bearable during the tedious ending of the tour. There were several ladies with husbands, two young girls with cavaliers, and an interesting mamma who did the talking for them. The girls were very pretty, and the cavaliers devoted. One was a young doctor. We all met him. The other was a descendant of the man who melted the emerald and kept it to himself. Naturally, the young man was rather mournful and stilted. His pride was inherited, and keeping a secret is the most acrobatic feat. And there was a companionable literary man constantly dipping in spelled salt. He did not allow his allusions to the plot of his forthcoming book, but occasionally boasted of a world of his own, as they all do, and limited his conversation to current topics. His pupilness was fascinating, an art. Then we had a mineralogist whose deep scientific problem was sleep. Occasionally he woke up and became as frisky as a boy of fifty. His wife was the only woman I ever met who could keep up an incessant chatter and still be interesting. There was a tragedian, playwright, all in one, including a wife. The tragedies this gentleman wrote were excellent farces. He was the greatest humorist of the time. His wit was sharp, bold, and frequently coarse, but he handled his subject with such real delicacy that it took a couple of days to discover that he shouldn't have told the joke, and we shouldn't have laughed. The wife was a beautiful, fair woman of that type that the most men are willing some other fellow shall possess. Everybody was very kind to me. And were I not so desperately in love, and therefore desperately unhappy, I would have greatly enjoyed the trip throughout this strange land. The country was rapidly changing in appearance. We sailed over a range of burnt and dwarfed mountains, enclosing completely a vast desert, which narrowed to meet a neck of land that stretched across the ocean, connecting Centauri with the Vesper Belt. This connecting land was fifty miles long, twenty wide, and most of the time submerged. You are viewing the ancient battlefield of the Vespers and the Centauries. The literary man informed me, the last war they had lasted forty years, close with carnage, and should be eliminated from history. The reading is not elevating. And neither have anything to be proud of. It occurred during the early ages when civilization ignored the earth, which was inhabited by savages and beasts, the beasts being superior and more humane. What the war was over, I've never discovered, nor has anyone else. But it was conducted upon the most hellish plans. During one engagement. The Vespers invaded too deeply the Centauri Desert. Their idea to surprise the enemy, who were ambushed in the hills. They were permitted to advance well inland. Then suddenly the Centauris appeared and surrounded them. Not one Vesper returned to the belt, but the scouts informed the Crescent people what had happened. The ancient King Benlio was a demon. The Vespers 
were enraged. And early the following day, the centaurs were astounded to see another Vesper army marching across the neck. The centaurs yielded their scorn of the advancing army and rushed to meet it. The battle was fought upon the peninsula. The Vespers gradually retreating, then suddenly, as though panic-stricken, turned tail and fled. The centaurs, wild, drunk with victory, pursued them closely, and at first did not see the tremendous wall of water rising, cutting off all escape. They realized where the land sank, and the mountainous waves engulfed them. It was a fiendish revenge. The Vespers are rightly named. The literary man gave a shrug of disgust. It had passed from his vision long ago. He was conversing with himself, a habit most literary people affect, and he walked away as unconcernedly as though it had never existed. I wondered if he had really repeated history or simply reviewed a scene from his new romance. We were crossing this historical naked land now, and all round deck, gazing curiously at the dim outlines of the Vesper belt. Alpha Centauri joined us, a pale, listless, heavy-eyed, and gave orders for low sailing that we could more distinctly view the possessions of King Benlia. She confidentially told me she would remain in seclusion during the journey over the Vesper belt and mournfully shook her head when I begged permission to visit her. The whisper belt has no charms for me, she murmured. Avidilius, do not be downhearted. You have told me the value of unhappiness. Life is incomplete without it. I am not despondent, but tortured with doubts. He whom I seek waits the central. But I have suffered disappointment so often, I dread another. Do not think of me, join the others. I shall not see you again till we are crossing the great ocean. She sighed heavily and entered her cabin before I could prevent. The door closed between us, and bitterly I regretted teaching her the knowledge of misery. Love had robbed her of individuality. Damning her with a craving for the unattainable worse than death, whose soothing balm for peace, rest, and vague identity was far more cheerful than internal yearning. From my heart, I wish I could make her the radiant, soulless, happy creature she was before we met. I would give all I possess if I had never crossed the pole. And suddenly, a longing came over me to see once again dear old Middleton. And traitor's thoughts galloped upon me. I had become enamored with a bright and glorious vision. Reproaches, sad eyes, mournfulness were killing my passion. But the vision still exists. I created it. But Centauri, who enslaved me, was fading. I joined the others, who were leaning over the ship's side and gazing curiously at the village we were sailing over. We could see the people crowding to the narrow streets, and from our ship came a faint report, 
followed by a cloud of deep violet smoke, which curled upward, twisted, and looked till finally the word Centauri floated in space beside us. It is a sight the crowds below shouted and cheered. We bellowed a response. Toward evening, we passed over a lovely bay. The air was soft and balmy, and we remained upon deck till near midnight. The time passed swiftly between the literary man and the humorist, while the ladies sang in clear, sweet voices. We turned in when a sudden icy squall struck us, and the last view we had of the new country was of dark, gloomy mountains. Next morning, before sunrise, I was on deck, but my traveling companions were earlier and judged me unmercifully. The little man was persistently witty about oversleeping. He'd been up all night and regaled us about the wondrous sights with the mist. We had sailed over three great cities, brilliant with light, humming with reverie, some celebration going on. And he continued, these vesper savages have built wonderful cities of superb architecture. I think we are approaching the royal city of Benlia. See the height of those monstrous domes. The steep of one temple has tried to pierce the sun. The ancient city of Benlia has for ages been the scene of poets. We were sailing over vast green fields and meadowland. Where thousands of cattle grazed, and far in the distance, gleaming white, phantom-like through the mist, we saw a great city. As we neared this spectral poem city, the mist cleared before the strong, hot rays of the rising sun, and beneath us stretched a scene of fabulous beauty: thoroughfares of marble lined with gigantic palms. Whose huge branches arched from side to side, high-domed buildings of pure white marble surrounded with vast gardens gorgeous with bloom. Poverty could not exist in this luxurious city. The ship sailed lower that we might view closer this paradise of earth. Nestled in the center of extensive gardens, miniature lakes and streams. Fourth cataracts and high spring fountains was a jewel-like palace of Benlio, a long, flat, shining building. Here, in the heart of civilization, is a barbaric relic of what the Vesper people were," remarked the literary man. "They have been working centuries upon that palace and are still adding to it. It will never be completed." The architecture is valuable only for antiquity and hideousness," he continued, "and tasks the ingenuity of modern architects to follow the original plan. The building is entirely mosaic. Taken as a whole, it is a remarkable beauty," I blurted out. "There is not another beauty to compare with it in the wide world." Everybody became greatly interested in the strange palace with its numerous domes, steeples, and beautiful lacy archways, an abode for gnomes and fairies, the crown jewel of the Vesper Belt, a stadium of artistic glory, 
century with all her wonders, could not boast of any work to compare with this marvelous palace. Slowly, reluctantly, we sailed from the superb marble city, with its gleaming white edifices, mosaic palaces, and vast boulevards haunting the memory, so that in dreams the beautiful scene is revisited again and again. This crescent-shaped country was cultivated from point to point, and boasted a population of over forty millions. The vespers worshipped the sun, but enjoyed the dusk. In century, twilight is unknown, and the state of progression between the two countries was not worth worrying over. They were tanto petanto. The morning of the third day, we reached the extreme north point of the belt, and sighted the great ocean. The air was misty, ice cold, and the piercing salt breeze suddenly turned to a terrific gale, and tore and whistled around the ship, forcing her head at a dizzy speed. We'll be out of it in a second, the little gent assured us. I felt we were venturing rather near the danger point. There, four wind currents meet. Anything caught in it is lost. The gear we are flying before is merely one of the four. Imagine the extreme north point of the crescent. It is said that at one time this land extended half across the ocean. But these four gales, blowing constantly for ages, have gradually blown the belt to its present small dimensions. Possibly in a few centuries more, the belt will vanish, and the crescent country become one of the great legends of Centauri. The ladies laughed incredulously, but the men pretended to take the speaker seriously. "You speak with prophetic wisdom," said the tragedian. The interpret of tragedies can be blunt, and its words always taken in jest. The whisper belt will never be swallowed by the four winds, but in less than ten years she will be submerged by Centauri. For a perfect civilization, progression, harmony, there must be unity. I do not jest, but a tragedian is always a jester. He was vigorously applauded, and encouraged to continue, but bowing, modestly refrained commenting further upon the subject, and suggested we go above, as the wind had calmed. We trooped up on deck, and were greeted by a hot, blazing sun, a deep blue sky, and a fierce ocean with mountainous waves boiling white beneath us. Far in the distance were the snow mountains and the white cliffs of the Whisper Belt, which in the clear sunlight showed up a perfect crescent. We have entered another zone, the writing gent informed us. We have emerged from the wind regions, and, uh, ahem. He ended abruptly. No one was listening to him, all looking one direction. And as I looked, the blood rushed to my head. Alpha Centauri stepped from her cabin, radiantly beautiful, garbed in white. In an instant, I was beside her, with passionate ardor, 
I pressed her hand to my lips. Her face flushed delicately. Pallor, dejection had vanished. Her eyes gleamed and burned. She was the personification of joy. In a few days, we'll be in Central. Think what that means to me, Vigilius. She murmured. You are positive then? I still have waited there. She replied. He waits me. Central ends all disappointments. I will talk with you later. This day of worship. I am the priest of the sun. Rising to a full height majestically, she walked down the deck with upstretched arms and waving toward the sun. High, clear, rolled her clarion voice in the call to worship, and the people flocked from all parts of the ship, circled around her, and kneeled. With a swaying form, she chanted in low, weird chants. The glorious eyes did not blink before the dazzling rays that enveloped her. She twisted, undulated, absorbed half the streaming fairy light and bathed every portion of her body. Then suddenly, as in ecstasy, out came the cry of devotion, high, clear, sweet. At that moment, the sun's rays slanted. And in the golden shadow, the glorious priestess stood silent, wrapped. Then her arms fell to her sides, and devotions ended. All rose and went about their various duties. Alpha turned to me with a smile as placid as a child's. Always the priestess of the sun, she murmured. I love, soul, how I love. This new worship absorbs my whole life, but always the priestess of the sun, Vigilius. I led her to the other side of the ship, away from the others. Vigilius, she murmured, "Do not think me childish, because I sought seclusion while sailing over the belt. I did not think of the vespers, but I could conceal my happiness no longer." Solitude has no prying, curious eyes. I was alone and gloomy, morose, despairingly worshiping a fancy, and believed you wish, Vigilius. I know not if I dreamed or was awake, but for the instant the veil of obscurity lifted, and I saw the future. Things like great paintings were revealed, then slowly slid from view. Only two was I permitted to gaze upon with memory. I saw the palace at the central sparkle in the vivid light of the moon. Wandering disconsolately through the halls was a form swathed in twilight. I tried to peer through the flickering dusk and listen to my name repeatedly called, frequently imploringly, always with passion. Like a magnet, I was drawn within the mystic gloom. I tried to touch. To speak with a shadow, then, like a flash, the scene shifted, and I floated over the Oxter Mountains, standing upon the cliffs, gazing with grave anxiety into the waters of the Otago, was your friend, the Great Sheldon. Suddenly, he raised his face, white, wild with terror, and shouting, he leaped with great bounds from cliff to cliff. 
His cries brought the men from the caves, and I saw my father among them, calm, magnificent, giving directions, commanding order. I heard an awful rumbling noise. The mountains swayed as trees in the wind. The sky became suffused, lurid. The air suffocated. There was a terrific explosion. A huge funnel of fire rose, meeting the heavens, and monstrous columns of yellow, red, and black smoke swallowed all nature. I shrieked in horror, and obscurity clouded the frightful scene. Once more, the future was blank, dark, elusive. Vigilus, I did not sleep or dream. Centauri, Sheldon, and Orgrism are in peril. I shall save them. Speed has been doubled. The ship travels swifter than the wind, and we will reach the mountains toward the evening of the day after tomorrow. It is the fastest time ever made over the great ocean, and the Augustus is the first land sighted, then central. Come, Virgilius, this will never do. We must join the others. Atoeste will teach you again his eternally playing with Diaste. Atoeste was a literary gent, and Hippodoraeste the dramatist. I argued against both gentlemen and the game, and feeling impelled to remain with her the afternoon, she laughingly refused to listen to me and made sport of my earnestness. We joined the others. Atoeste called me to the table where he was playing with Diaste. I watched the game some time. But was soon convinced that in a hundred years I couldn't master it. It was tedious, complicated, and played with oblong ivory chips the size of match, ornamented with fine threads of color. The game seemed a mixture of chess, checkers, and hopscotch, played upon a board similar to the chart of the heavens. The splintery chips were twirled in the air. And fell upon the chart in squares, triangles, circles. Where the tricks points came in, I was still to discover. The gentleman invited me to take a flip in the game, but I hastily retreated amid shouts of derision. We were warned from the deck as the ship suddenly lowered and zigzagged at a terrific speed. The great winds fluttered heavily. Infrequently, the ship crested the turbulent waves like a monster seagull. We had reached the danger zone. Safety lay in hugging the water to avoid the fierce wind currents crashing above. But we soon outdistanced the danger and gradually floated upward higher and higher. By noon, we crossing our accustomed sphere, but speeded on with the hurricane following swiftly. From the little signal house, Alpha and I watched the storm gathering and strengthening. We speed ahead, she murmured. But if cold, devotion so sore, all is over. I press her close to me. At that moment, death with her seemed a rapture. Then she was mine forever. But I shall never forget that frightful night, the din. Uproar of thunderous cannonading, as great black, red, lightning-pierced clouds met the ocean, was terrifying. 
The ship creaked and groaned threateningly in her wild flight before the hurricane. With ill-concealed alarm, I sat up all night, but the others retired as usual. The centurion equipoise will remain forever an enigma. Dawn ended a period. We still traveled before a gale, but had outsailed the tempest. Above was a clear blue sky, and the soft radiance of the rising sun enveloped the ship. Till the noon, we reached the dead calm ocean tropics. The heat flamed upon oily, slothful waters, but we sailed with the swiftness of bird. And far in the distance, a hydrotrope bridge met her vision. The oxdas, cried Alpha, delighted. We shall reach them in the early evening. And all day she watched till the wider line became a positive purple, and gradually deepening into a peak and a curve with salt velvety slopes. Yet as we neared the mountains, I noticed with astonishment. And they reached the water's edge without a beach. Perpendicular cliffs with a smooth, shining surface, barren, upright, a gigantic wall that the huge ocean waves dash against in high bounding sprays. It was a rosy twilight when we sailed over these uncanny mountains, so sharply divided by cold and barren cliffs on one side. And the deep forests, rich valleys on the other. Anxiously, Arthur gazed downward, and called my attention to the ominous rumbling, which I suppose was the roar of the ocean. I feel we are too late," she murmured. "It seems we will never reach the place where the great shield and centauri are imperiling their lives, tempered with the volcanic Ortega." In vain I tried to calm her. Words made her desperate, and as the detonations increased, she clasped her hands tightly in agony. The air grew dense, sultry, vibrating with electricity. All scented danger, calamity, and cast together in alarmed little groups, murmuring, "The Ortega, the Ortega." The ship slackened speed as we sighted the Ortega. And her great wings fluttered as though about to lower. Upon us, all was agitation. The ocean boiled furiously, and high tide crashing over the steep cliff wall and flooding the land. People, panic-stricken, scurried in all directions. Then Centauri appeared. We knew him by his long white beard. The little crowd gathered about him, but suddenly. All with one accord, we rushed to the side of the mountain, where, in a hollow, the ship rested. We could see them scrambling over the side of the vessel, working, tugging with desperation to loosen her. We lowered a little to give assistance, but the ship bounded free. The great bag wings vigorously unfurled. Then shouts of distress coming from land startled us, and we saw men running. Mad with terror, he reached the ship, and grasping the side, just as she lurched upward, jerked his body out with a shock, then banging it back with terrific force. I turned sick, 
and covering my eyes. The man was Sheldon. My blood curdled as I thought of his awful death, expecting, of course, that he'd fallen to earth and was dashed to pieces. But Arthur whispered that he was safe, that he'd come to the vessel as he had to his theory, and the centauri had dragged him from his awful position. I could see him lying on the deck. The two vessels sailed close and established communication. Arthur talked with her father, and I learned the Great Otega would soon be in eruption after a crowd of six centuries. We lingered to view the phenomenon. I am glad the matter is settled for all time, murmured Arthur. Certainly the Great Sheldon's visit to Centauri has been of some benefit. His lovely theories have obtained positive results and settled forever a grave doubt to the satisfaction of everyone. She loved as I suggested that Sheldon, to a certain extent, had been deceived. He deceived himself, she replied. No one disputed his positive assertions, and consequently he believed all agreed with him. But everyone went up to his oxters and bent upon private investigations. Your friend was intent upon discovering the source of that body of water, and delegates from four geographical geological societies accompanied him solely to determine whether the volcano was extinct or not. All have been successful. Isn't it strange, Vigilius, she continued, and that water was so fresh, wholesome, beneficial to the system, that the fish could not live in it. We tried, and a warning shot came from a centaur's ship. Earth shot upward like a rocket, and slanted across the sky, swift as an arrow. A terrific explosion took place, and thunder rolled from the heavens, while Earth responded with tremendous detonations. The incessant roaring, sizzling noise was frightful. The majestic fury of the Otega had awakened from its long trance. Sulfurous flames played about the volcano. Giving it a terrible, weird appearance. Steam rose in monstrous clouds, and the waves of the liquid fire boiled and dashed against the cliffs, overflowing the huge cauldron in broad streams of molten mass, deluging the earth with devastation. Ashes, rock, and lava shot skyward in monster geysers of incandescent matter that gave us prismatic lights, and stinging, serpent like coils rise to the sea. Voluminous waves hedging the oxters, and their steady blaze cast a deep crimson purple glare over the heavens that must have reached to central. Over ten miles away, a ship had a heavy coating of cinders, and the sickening odor of sulfur suffocated. A scorching smoke devoured the air and hung like a pall over all nature, obscuring everything except the splendid. Diabolical phenomenon. Belching flame and lightning forking from the gigantic crested columns that shot upward hundreds of feet. It was a fearsome, stupendous spectacle. And time seemed infinite. I'm so absorbed had I been watching the magnificent Ortega that from light touch I started as from a dream, mumbling gruffly. Awake, Vigilius. You are fascinated by the splendid Otega. A sudden dazzling flash illuminated the ship, and I saw her. 
she laughed teasingly as I caught her hand and pressed it against my face. We are going to central, she told me. All lights have been extinguished. The thousands are on their way to view the volcano. Surely it will become unknown that I have returned. The loyal people will forego that marvelous sight and accompany us back to central. The lava streams are rushing down the other side of the mountain into the sea. The flow will continue many days, and there will be intermittent eruptions for months. Then the Ortega will be dormant, probably forever. Much damage done? Some, she answered. To the portalilis. The Oxlas is the property of the portalilis. They know the Ortega and avoid it. There's much timber lost, but the portalilis are a tribe of vast wealth. Centauri has ordered his ship brilliant and illuminated, so all may know he has not perished. Our ship had ceased its aimless floating, and set it straight for central. Far in the distance, speeding toward the oxters, were thousands of red globe lights traveling thick together. They seemed as a Milky Way suddenly lowered to a sphere. We darted in a westerly direction, avoiding the flying multitude, which gradually sailed past like a great stream of meteors, and traveling groups or long straggling lines, and all heavily laden with sad seers. A huge vessel, sailing apart from the others, edged us closely. She was gaily illuminated and decorated with the colors of Centauri. We did not clear her in time, and she spied our dark hawk and saluted. We flashed further into the darkness, but the sound of gay music Wild singing, shouts, and the shrill laughter of the men and women aboard followed us. A private vessel, party of pleasure-loving young people out for luck, I suggested. Arthur watched the vessel till it appeared but a pale stream of light against the sky. Possibly a wedding party, she replied. But the ship floated the colors. Which signals some great personage aboard, and banners are hoisted only upon national fete days. This ship carried the flag of Centauri. Order this particular ship should thrill such as we pass to nearly collide with us. She gazed perplexedly into the darkness, and suddenly, thoughtfully, studied the starry horizon. Then, with a murmured good night and a gentle handclasp. She left me. Suddenly, a ship blazed with lights, and the Centauri banners were hoisted. We cut sharply across the heavens, separating entirely from the speeding sightseers. Our lights were distinguishable. No one dreamed our Centauri was returning to Central. It is three hours on the new day. Why do you not retire? A deep voice rumbled close to my ear. With a start, I turned and confronted the literary man. Why don't you sit with yourself? I snapped. I have rested too long. I'm fine and real with my work, but have put everything aside to complete an ode upon the joyful emotions Arthur Santoy is supposed to entertain when beholding Central once again. 
His eyes twinkled, and he chuckled without smiling. "You are humorous," I told him. "Do you doubt the joyful emotions?" "I never answer questions," he replied. "They always lead to argument, and time is too limited for that. An argument should last at least a month, and both sides talking all the time. How very young!" Inexperienced, you must be, Vigilius. You still have to discover that women have no emotions. The centurions are all humorists, and tragedy is an obliterated evil. And Vigilius, we reach central at sunrise. I must go and finish my ode to joy. We will meet again. He hurried away, chuckling. Glancing over his shoulder to smile good-humouredly at me, alone, a sudden depression came upon me. I was living in a nerve-wracking atmosphere of doubt and anxiety. Dejectedly, I entered my cabin to wait in gloomy misery for day, but deadly wearied, unknowingly, I sank into deep slumber, which lasted till heavy movements about the ship roused me. I hurried on deck. The morning was flush with the rising sun. We sailed over a deep blue bay, and just ahead glistened the crystal city of Central. Everybody was on deck to view the magnificent scene, but exchanged amused glances and smiled openly at my tardiness. While Alpha, radiant, buoyed with hope, greeted me with laughter and jest. Repose had not banished despondency. I chilled with dread and black forebodings. In all the travels, when constantly fearing the possible materializing of the adored, I never experienced the positive hopelessness that now warned me of sure and bitter, bitter disappointment. Alpha Centauri would treasure the ideal forever. I was miserable. Cruelly fated to worship a phantom which was fading from my life, I knew it. In agony of wretchedness, I caught her hand, holding it tight, and she, God, laughed in her merciful mood and taunted my gloomy countenance. The others joined in her sport and gave encouragement and quelled my depression. Yet smile I could not. The dramatist declared I would make the tragedy popular again, and the literary genius told me he would never regret our meeting, as I had coloured the closing chapter of his forthcoming romance, which finale would crown him with immortality. You shall just no longer get my Vigilius," cried Alpha, leading me away, so laughing merrily. It matters not. What passed between us? She spoke seriously, and of the future. I am glad to return, she murmured. Do not begrudge me the scant joy of expectancy. It is only on the surface. In my heart, I feel, ah, I cannot, I cannot envelop you with a sweet foolishness lavished upon the impossible. But you told me to love. I belong to you, and 
materials, they may both be happy yet. God, I gasped, scarce believing what I heard. My senses tingled. I seemed to choke. She gazed at me with wide-open, tender eyes, and passionately I pressed her hand to my lips. She flushed my ardor and turned aside. In mad adoration, I caught her in my arms and crushed her to me. I cared not if the whole world spied upon us. I kissed my glorious Alva upon the lips, eyes, and sweetly flushed the cheeks. Snickering, smothered guffaws, and roused my drugged senses, protesting vigorously, yet good-naturedly against my ardent caresses. Alva freed herself, calling me a wild boy, but lovable. And look, she cried, running to the ship's side. Look, Vigilius, we have reached the central. End of section twenty-one.